Welcome to Cloudlandia. Mr. Sullivan. It's a joy. Wow. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we didn't really connect with Caroline uh, before we went. Um, It was sitting in my schedule there. So, yeah. You know. So here we are. If it was possible, I want it to be possible. But yeah, also Phoenix doesn't change time. So, you know, we were three hours phone time away last night, but we're only two hours today. So I just wanted. (laughs) You're getting closer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like I had a client from Newfoundland once, and we were talking at the time of Quebec separation when Quebec was voting possibly to separate uh, yeah. Canada. And I asked him, how, how do you feel about that? And he says, I'm for it. He says, I'm totally for Quebec separation. And yeah. I says, why? why? He says, because then St. John's will be that much closer to Toronto. <laughs> exactly. 9.30 in Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the whole province of Quebec would be missing. Yes, exactly. So, Get out of the way. <laughs> we'll just shift everything to the west. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, I we, am we'd an official. We probably have to explain that to our listeners. Who are well, I Canadians. am, by the way, an official newfie. So I get to. I, yeah, I get you, were born in you were I was born, born in Gander. You were born in Stephenville. Um, yeah, but near uh, Gander, yes. And mm-hmm. so there's a, uh, for our friends that are listening from other parts than Canada. Newfoundlanders have a very beloved place in the uh, hearts and minds of Canadians as often the, let's call it the the blondes of the blonde joke world is the Newfie jokes in Canada. And that's a fun, that's one of the fun ones. If Quebec separates, it'll be, that'll be uh, Newfoundland that much closer to Ontario. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, we finished with Genius Friday night, and then there was a party on the Friday night. But yeah. we just we're just hanging around in Scottsdale for two or three days before we go down to Tucson. So okay, uh, nice. So you're here this yeah. week. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So How do right. you? Where are you staying this time? Royal Palms. Uh, so okay. Right nice. up, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because. We were going to spend time with Joe, you know, we were uh-huh. here and we haven't in person, we haven't seen him since the shutdown back in right. 2020. And then he gets, yeah. he gets last yeah. weekend and uh, it was a bummer for him. So anyway, so, but gee, the two days were really terrific. And, uh, yes. We want to debrief genius. a little on that yeah. because that was yeah. a, uh, you were experiencing it live front and center. Mm-hmm. I yeah, and it was uh, it. it was I think our best in in person experience going back to 2011. That was when Babs and I first joined uh, Genius Network, and it was in New York. Uh, first of all, uh, right? yeah. yeah, first of all, you know Joe's team. You know they've really upped the game. I have to say oh, that but, Tim Tim Paulson did an amazing job of. Yeah facilitating and orchestrating the the event he's really great in that role and he did a did an amazing job i told him he'd been hiding i said you've been hiding for 20 years mm-hmm. yeah we but brought he, it out uh, just in time to retire <laughs> yeah 
Anyway, yeah, we thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, and he did a, a wonderful job conceptually structuring, you know, how to approach the two days. You know, he had those four sort of mindsets up front, the, you know, follow the master. And, and so it was, it was really nice because structuring content, you know, where people say, we're going to cover this, we're going to cover this, and we're covering this doesn't interest me that much, but when you give up front a set of concepts, and I actually got a cue from that, you know, for my own ongoing workshops at the mm-hmm. beginning, don't talk about, don't talk about the content of what's going to be happening, but these are the concepts, conceptual frameworks to keep in mind as we're going through next period of time. So I, that, that was a total pickup for me. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. 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 And so what was you can you can continually remind them of the concepts, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, I'm not saying con- contextual rather than conceptual, yeah. but the contextual, you know, you have to keep this in mind like uh halfway through feels like a failure, you know, and that that's yeah. uh, saying so are you having experience? are you really kind of you know, challenged by this or, you know, kind of struggling with this. Remember halfway through is feels like a failure. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I said, gee, you know, that's really a terrific way of terrific way of uh, putting together a, a, you know, a two days that has a lot of content. So it mm-hmm. gives people uh, kind of a overview. So anytime they're worried about if they're getting it or not getting they they, you can just remind them, remember, we're halfway through. Mm-hmm. Babs just kissed, blew a kiss to you, and she's on her way out to the Henry. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I love the Henry. Yes. I miss yes. it. Yeah. Well, Dan, you know, what's funny, because last week we kind of talked a little bit about that halfway, you know, and it's even more deceptive digitally because oh. – we talked about, you know, the doublings of things and mm-hmm. up until the last iteration, you're only halfway like doubling. That was what happened with the, with the digital camera, right? Is it feels mm-hmm. like a failure, like this isn't going to be anything. That's why it's deceptive, right? Mm-hmm. And start because it's at 0.2 pixels megapixels, then 0.4, then 0.8, then 1.6, and then pretty soon two more iterations, and you're at the highest level of any camera even available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's totally the disruptive at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. Yeah. I think when we see these things now, you know, when you start yeah. talking about, like, I think when you, you know, the the mega... I think that the domino, the big, like colossal domino has been tipped now in terms of setting the metaverse into action, that there's no steering away from that now. That's an inevitability, right? And I think that we're getting that way with cryptocurrencies and that decentralized finance, I think these things, we're definitely at a cusp of at least the convergence of those two things um, mm-hmm. shaping what's going to happen in the next um, 
you know, five years kind of. Yeah, I think the the thing that the way I approach it from, uh, you know, from, you know, these predictions, first of all, they are predictions. Yeah. You know, and I was reading Gordon Moore. I was reading a little article on Gordon Moore, whose name is associated with the exponential, you know, the exponential progression of the microchip, basically. Yeah. And he was he was talking about a single device in the 1965, I think he wrote an article in a, in a technical magazine, and he had three data points of seeing the processing power what was called an integrated circuit at that time. They hadn't put the name microchip on it yet. And mm-hmm. and he was talking that there might be an interesting progression here just based on three data points that may, maybe and perhaps every 18 months to two years, we might get a, you know, a uh, doubling of the processing power. And mm-hmm. it seems to me that it costs less to do this. So you got and it caught on immediately, like it became a wildfire. Yeah. And he was asked about that. He says, you know, you've almost like discovered a law here. And he says, actually, it's not, he says, it's not a law. He says, it's not like the law of gravity. But he says, what it is, it gives um, imaginative people a framework to actually aspire, you know, aspire to a much bigger result. And, you know, and it seems to give a language that people can compare their progress against, against uh, you know, against this particular mm-hmm. standard. And, uh, you know, we can put a date on the calendar and say, okay, this is the beginning of the two-year doubling. And then mm-hmm. everybody strives to actually achieve, uh, achieve that. Mm-hmm. And my sense, the metaverse, I've been reading a lot about, you know, I've been reading articles about it and when people say it's going to transform things it means to like you know at a certain point everybody's going to be doing this but Mm -hmm. half the planet right now doesn't have uh, access to electricity right i mean you know electricity that could possibly power this type of technology and yeah it wouldn't be at the top of their list of uh things they want to achieve that day. But what it does say is that some individuals who have a lot of everything's handled in terms of, you know, their organization and their, you know, communication and their economics and everything else yeah. will will create a way of operating more in this new world than they're operating in previous world. And that's what it means. And in <laughs> fact, if you got back now and uh, said, well, is there any people right now, even before this becomes uh, popular, are there any people right now who who have actually been doing this for a long time? And the truth is that the Navy SEALs have been operating and other special forces units in the military Mm -hmm. have been operating in the metaverse for quite a long time. In other words, Uh they create three-dimensional, complete three-dimensional digital replicas or worlds, replicas or setups of Mm -hmm. what the place looks like or the destination place and what the building looks like and how do you approach it. And they practice in virtual realm 
thousands, maybe halfway around the world, uh, they practice and then they work out angles and then they say, well, what happened to you there? Are there any blind spots you have to worry about? So my sense is that um, that there's two places generally where technology makes its greatest advances with a small number of people before it becomes available to a large number of people. And one of them is weapon, weaponry or war. Right. And, the, and the other one is games. And so my feeling in the games world, this has been operating for quite a long time, and the, in the military world, it's been operating for a long time. In the intelligence world, yeah. I wonder yeah. if you wonder about DARPA and what that kind of, I yeah. mean, crazy stuff we don't even know about. Yeah, and sure. I mean, in its simplest form, like, you know, airline, you know, pilot training now yeah. is done all in simulators, you know. And have uh, been for years, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I 30 years ago, there was a place near Pearson Airport in, uh, in Toronto. Uh, it's called EAS. And they're the number one provider of uh, cockpit simulators for airline pilots. And wow. the pilots have to go in there, have, have to go in there, and they have to test on a regular basis. Wow. And so, so my sense is that, you know, when predictions are made about technology, you have to understand these technologies are already being, being used by some people. And what the projection is, like, you know, with Mark Zuckerberg a couple of weeks ago and other people talking about that, they they want them, they want the experience to be mass consumed, like everybody is doing this. And the, yeah. the, to a certain extent, they're trying to sell people. Well, you got to get into this as soon as possible. Yeah. And uh, and so I think it's not so much a technological projection; it's a it's a marketing message. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's I think you know when you look at the we mentioned. I've been watching these history of things. And I think that we're looking now that, you know, 100 years from now, or 150 years from now, we'll look back at the men who built the metaverse as the mm-hmm. same, in the same way we look at the guys that, you know, wired the country for electricity and the guys that wired mm-hmm. the, or laid the, mm-hmm. the roadways and the, the railroads, all of that as foundational infrastructure and mm-hmm. that's the platform that i think that mm-hmm. i'm starting to look for like what are the second and third waves of it like once the railroad was there that then laid the platform for what other types of opportunities on top of that mm-hmm. that's where i think that that's where i get excited is that's where i kind of yeah. And to uh, look is to adapt the things that are, you know, available there in, in new ways that we can use that yeah. infrastructure. Well, I've been, you know, doing a project for a couple of years, self-driving automobiles, okay, and, you know, because the, the predictions have not come true of how fast. Not in the way that, yeah self-driving automobiles and i started you know i was noticing that there was uh growing anger in the part of the proponents of of 
you know, why public officials and, you know, weren't catching on. They weren't getting with, you know, they weren't getting with the program, you know, <laughs> and yeah. everything else. And so what I created was a file of all the reasons why self-driving cars won't happen. And so there's lots of articles and there's lots of uh, little checklists, seven reasons why self-driving cars won't won't happen. And it was an interesting example because they can't figure out where the key sensors are going to be. Are the key sensors going to be in the car or the key sensors going to be in the environment? Like, for example, that the cars will have a uniform kind of system which yeah. picks up on cues from outside the car. Yeah. So that what that guarantees is that all the cars are picking up on the same environmental cues. Yeah, you know, from, from outside, uh-huh. you know, and that's not, there are nowhere of knowing um, whether that's true, uh, because the reason is that if you're going to have a major breakthrough, it probably has to be the environment that is uniform, not the independent. It would be when trains first started, they didn't realize that you had to have a common gauge. In other words, that the tracks had to be uniformly apart. And then you make all the, the different manufacturers who make locomotives and cars, they have to build their cars so that it meets the grade. So everybody's right. wheels. And self-driving cars aren't anywhere near that standardization yet. They aren't, uh, you know, because they're in competition with each other. Well, first of all, They're at the stage where it's just that uh, they're striving to be electric cars and the whole notion that then this is a platform then where it will be self-driving cars. So they're a long way away uh, because it interacts with municipal laws. It interacts Mm -hmm. with, you know, the political system. And I was, so somebody took uh, an example of New York City and Manhattan, and they said, you know, well, let's just talk about a mile of street in Manhattan where we put all the sensors in. And they estimated, you know, to put in the sensors, it'd probably be about a million and a half, two million dollars a mile. Oh, wow. uh, and that's not, which automatically becomes three million dollars a mile because of uh, bribery and payoffs and right. <laughs> work stoppages, work stoppages and strikes yeah. and after uh, so a three million mile, but you can't do just one mile. You got to do the entire system because just having that <laughs> self driving for one mile, right, right, you really wouldn't do it. And and so the obstacles, <laughs> the number of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about obstacles goes up exponentially, right? And uh, and then, do people want that, or do not people want to do that? So I was talking to you know, I was talking to Peter one day, and I said, you know, when you have these predictions, all the money is actually in the obstacles. Mm-hmm. Solving the obstacles, of course. Yeah, that's Vote where that. all the money is. Yeah, that's where all the money is. I said. The the money isn't in the payoffs. The money is in everything that prevents the payoffs. <laughs> Transforming obstacles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you can see this in our world. That you know, of, uh, just to use an example, the tax code. I mean, if there's anything that's gone exponential in our common experience, it's the tax code. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, 
Yeah, I mean, our tax code, personal tax code, you know, at one point might have been five pages, and now it's uh, 500 pages. I mean, there's been exponential growth in the tax code. And then all the money is in consulting and, you know, accountants and lawyers and everything to, to deal with the complexity of the tax code. Yeah. Yeah, this is wild. I mean, you wonder. I mean, that's kind of the talk of how the of how NFTs could change that level of thing too, if it were embraced. That could be that just inherent within it is the almost like a circulation tax in a way of currency or whatever money gets exchanged and used for. That there's that siphoning. Mm-hmm. Transactional siphoning, almost like a yeah transfer tax. There's that's a possibility, you know. It, it's really, I, I think, yeah, things are gonna heat up here in the in this next mm-hmm. little while. I mean, you must. Well, I want to. Uh, can I bring up another point that was brought up in our last podcast? And yeah, you you made a statement that you find me the most analog person that you probably know. Uh And I was thinking about that during the week. And could you put a couple, you know, other observations with that? So that, first of all, that I can understand what you're seeing, but our our listeners can understand that I'm sort of analog. Yeah. So you you have an iPhone, but the number one person dialed on that is this number that we're talking on right now that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that every 95 percent of the minutes that you have available are spent in one thing you're not on you're not accessible digitally in a way that most people are accessible and, and yeah. people who know you and are close to you are around that i mean you, you understand that there's I imagine that there are a handful of people, maybe a, a bigger handful of people who actually um, have your email address. Yeah. So I know I can email you if I need to reach you or want to, but I wouldn't dream of texting you or calling mm-hmm. you. They don't have that. And by analog, I think what we're, I mean it in the best way of, asynchronous at your discretion is how you engage mm-hmm. not synchronously and interruptively you know most mm-hmm. people who are once you're plugged in to the digital way <clears throat> the digital way excuse me is that we're interruptive that we're tapped in like you you know it's interesting just this exchange right now. Here we are. You sent an email to me this morning after we had talked last week. I thought that you were going to be at Canyon Ranch this week and that we were, uh-huh. it was an off week. And then I got your email because I have my digital, you know, tethering device <laughs> at, in my hands. And I saw that and I, was able to email you back and we jump on and did this. So 
that I don't have that level of confidence that you're uh, you know, re- reactively checking your email in in mm-hmm. uh, at at all times or whatever. I don't feel like that, and that's what I mean by that. That is analog in in that way. You mm-hmm. are disconnected from TV and yeah. from interruptive piped in programming that is sent your way and you are selectively curating seeking what you want to bring into your mm-hmm. attention you know your that, that's i mean there, there's part of it but i mean just almost in every way where people are more mm-hmm. digitally tapped in you are standing apart you know you're nobody you're not you're not connecting to in a digital way you're you using facebook you're using these things on your team mm-hmm. uh, things are happening but you're not getting any of it on you you know you're very insulated um from that so I, I feel that's my take on it that you're directing it and you know contributing your you know thoughts yeah. or, or content yeah and that. i the the reason i'm bringing this up because we had ned hallowell giving a talk on, yeah you know on adhd and when i had gotten my analysis it was with the amen clinic uh, joe Joe Polish and Babs and I went to Newport Beach, and this is 2000, it was 2010, 2011. And uh-huh. I had I I, heard about, you know, that uh, the testing, you know, I'd seen a little uh, article I saw, at, you know, on the internet about uh, this testing, and it was three days of testing, and Long story short, we went and, you know, we did it. And But before you were admitted to their program, you had to go online and they had a, a 200 point questionnaire, 200 uh-huh. questions that you had to, which I was thinking would pro- pro- probably, probably screen out about 95% of ADD. Right, people. exactly. Yeah. But in my case, I don't have a problem with that kind of thing. I like, I like, being asked questions and then, you know, coming up. And it, it was like a three, 360 degree analysis of your personal life, your professional life, and how you organize yourself and, and, you know, what your family situation was growing up and what you observed about your parents and your, you know, your siblings. Cause ADD is very inheritable. It's, uh, of all yeah. psychological characteristics, I think it's uh, you know near the top of things which will be inherited from parents to children. And, and it's very clear to me that both my parents. I mean, looking back and knowing what I know about ADHD, it's very clear to me that they both were um, had had this. And uh, but it's very clear to me that none of my siblings do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very focused. You know, they're very orderly, very, very structured. Mm-hmm. And except for one brother who actually committed suicide. And I, it made me think 
that this condition not understood back in the 1950s, not understood in the 1960s, got him into difficult situations, which compounded kind of a sense. And at a certain point, he, you know, it got it mixed up with drugs and all sorts of other things, and he committed suicide. But anyway, so I got, I did that, and so I answered all the questions. Then went to the clinic in Newport Beach, and did. Three it's about three hours a day, three days of testing with uh, brain scan machines, and then they uh, measure you at rest, measure you in activity, concentration, memory, uh, alertness, response time, everything. And then they put together a report, and then there's a two-hour wrap-up talk with one of their specialists who's a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, she's... I, I was really looking forward to talking to you, she says, because in all my experience of doing these tests with people, you have the widest difference between what your, the answers to your questionnaire tell us and what the test tells. And she said, the, your answers to the question, uh, questionnaire prompted my question, why is he even coming and talking to us? He, you know, there's no need for, there's no need for him, you know, to have anything done because he lives in a very orderly environment. It's very structured. You know, seems to not be overwhelmed by not be overwhelmed by all sorts of interruptions and distractions. He seems to have a good control of time, and you know, he doesn't have a lot of complications in his life. But she said the test you've got like a ten ring circus going on. All the time. <laughs> right. And she says, Can you explain that? <clears throat> so I said, Well, it all comes down to who owns the circus. Mm. You're in control of the circus, right? I'm in control of the circus. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think I said, I, uh, the way your test described me is my daily experience. I'm constantly being thrown off track. Yeah. So what I've done is that I've systematically, and I think probably if I can measure back when I started creating thinking tools for myself, it was probably late teens that I was starting to create tools where I could think through certain situations then and come up with a really good solution for me and then work to make that solution a daily habit. Nice. Yeah. And, and she said, well, and then we got into the strategic coach and she said, well, she says, this really explains a lot because she said, I don't know who else you created this strategic coach program for, but I do know that you created it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what's funny is that's the, what I mentioned when Ned was talking, I think it was in response to a question from Babs talking about my, the 50 minute focus finder. That mm-hmm. was something that I created for myself just on mm-hmm. observation. Like mm-hmm. I'll tell it quickly. So for people who haven't heard me uh, talk about it, but you know, I was observing that it was difficult for me to, do the things that I knew I wanted to do, like to get myself to sit down and and focus. And 
I started, one of the great questions that I always ask myself, is that true? Or are there situations where I do focus, right? And I started thinking, I don't have any problem at all focusing for four and a half hours on playing around a golf. I find it delightful. I do it regularly and successfully, and I, I don't have any problems with that. I love going to movies. I can focus for up to three hours on watching a movie. You know, I'm very focused and, and disciplined in that. You can't distract me from it or take me off course. And I started thinking, okay, so what is it about golf that allows me to demonstrate that level of focus? What goes, what is it about the environment of it that is allowing me to do it? Because at the time I was playing two or three rounds of golf a week and I would, I recognized that the, my system for that was that I knew the times that I was going to play golf. I, I had a goal. So I made the acronym of golf, G-O-L-F. And G was, I had a goal. I was going to play mm-hmm. golf. I've defined my outcome, what I was going to do. I'm going to play golf. And I would put it on my calendar. And I knew who I was going to play with, where I was going to play, what what time I was going to play. And it was there. And my whole week would work around it. And I would arrange so that I would show up on time, just like our big four, show up on time and uh, do what I say I'm going to do and finish what I start and say please and thank you. But the, you know, when I would show up and then the O is for an optimal environment and a Mm -hmm. golf course is the optimal environment for playing golf. It's Mm -hmm. laid out exactly like we need it to be 18 sequential holes with a little path to keep you on track, broken down with benchmarks along the way. You keep your score as you're going um, all the way to stay on track you know your progress. Then L is for limited distractions. Right? Mm-hmm. When you're on the golf course, if you leave your phone in your locker and you are out there off the grid, there's very little distraction to, mm-hmm. to take you off of off task. And F mm-hmm. is for a fixed time frame. Mm-hmm. That we know, I know it's going to take four and a half hours or four hours to to play golf. And same thing mm-hmm. with a movie. If I'm going to a movie, mm-hmm. I know that it's two hours or three hours. I have to see an epic movie, but I never mm-hmm. have a problem blocking those things um, off. So I've started taking my cues from that and mm-hmm. applying that framework. To the things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so I would define what it is that I want to do in terms of the goal. What do I want to do? I want to, and I'd have a verb for whatever it is. We talked about the verbs on the, the joint mm-hmm. procrastination podcast. Often it would be brainstorm and outline or record, or those are my, the power verbs mm-hmm. or think 
about mm-hmm. whatever uh, these are. So I'd say, I want to think about this project or this book or this program that I'm working on and I'll block it in the thing. And then the optimal environment, where's the optimal environment for this? What is my power position for this? For me, most of the time, my number one power position is sitting on my white couch in my courtyard with my journal and, or my remarkable and thinking, right? I'm in the position there. But what I have to also do is limit distractions. So that means that I leave my phone in another room. There's no internet. There's no anything there. I'm in a quiet environment. There's no people to distract me, no TV, no computer, none of that. I'm just limited distraction focused in my environment for a fixed time frame. I have an Uh egg timer. I have an egg timer, non-digital analog that twists to 50 minutes. And I sit and I can focus for those 50 minutes. And Uh that is how I work around you know, my created that as a workaround. And it's the most, it's like the the base unit of productivity for me. Everything, no matter what I'm going to do, requires me to be able to focus for at least, you know, that 50 minutes at a time, be multiples of that. But that's the base unit. It's just repeating that same process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that technology yeah. for me is my, that's my workaround. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so just a couple observations is that I totally understand, you know, I, under, I totally understand exactly what you've pulled off, you know, in the past to get to where you are and yeah. how you're going to pull it off in the future. And, and because, it checks out all the boxes of exactly why I've done what I've done. And then the other thing about it is I would never do it the way that you do it. And you would never do it the way that I do it. Yeah. Tell me your, your model. No, but and what mm-hmm. I mean by that is that uh, the individual strategies and the individual uh, yeah. structures that you've created are uniquely yours. And, yeah. And, you know, and, Part of it is because uh, you've tested them and this works and there's nine that didn't work. And there's this whole, you know, there's this whole looking backwards. There's this whole path from the backwards horizon of things you've tried that worked and didn't work and didn't work. And you've gradually refined them down to the things that always work. You know, they just always Yeah, it was interesting to me that they're the things that, like, you know, pulling off, playing golf for four and a half hours, three times a week is, that's a pretty disciplined focus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And going to movies, you know, being, you know, setting up that time every Friday afternoon, we'd go to the movies and record a movie review. You know, yeah. those things are disciplined you know, repeatable things that I was already, there's clues 
in my life that I, I am capable of taking repetitive focused action, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so just identifying so, it. Yeah. So what, what I'm saying, I'm, I'm applying this back to the metaverse world. Yeah. Okay. And, and I'm saying that I think that there's a boundary in the future between two uniquely different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is there are people who can only feel structure for themselves, you know, and a kind of a sense of, you know, pleasure. Actually, you know, they have, I'll call it pleasurable structure, that they have structure only by consuming what other people have created. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole consumption side of this. Yes. And then on the other side of the line are people who create their own pleasurable structures because yeah. the stuff that other people create are, are subpar. You know, right. They, you know, I'm, and, you know and, and that's the entrepreneurial crossover, you know, because the vast yeah. majority of people, I mean, for all the talk about, you know, how entrepreneurism is increasing, there's no... There's actually no statistical evidence that it's changed in the last 50 years. You know, mm. It's about 5% of the working population, the adult population, actually brings their, their useful income, you know, their necessary and useful income by their own means. You know, they have to initiate something and create mm. something. And everybody else has to have it created for them. They have to, you know, yeah. they have to have an employer or a corporation. I've been thinking, yeah. I've been trying to plant this seed for Philip here about the the concept of uh, makers and takers. Yeah. You know, and that's really a, uh, that's really a, a big distinction. Yeah, and that's exactly, you know, I mean, using two different words than I use, yeah. but that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. That it has to be given to you. It has to be yeah. given to yeah. someone else has to uh, give it to you. And what I did yeah. is, you know, I, I I had created, and I think, you know, it's nudging ahead to the front of the line for one of my quarterly books. And it's the book that I call Thinking About Your Thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and what I said is the vast majority of thinking that goes around you, you know, and daily life on the planet is falls into three areas that people are thinking about things. You know, there's yes. things around us, things we like, things we don't like, things other people have, things we have, and the things we're acquiring, things we want to acquire, things are no longer useful. But it's about things and these are objects. And without any question, they were things that were actually created by other people. You know, they were yes. they, they that so we are born into a world where you know a world of many things. The other one is they think about people. Okay, they yeah. think about other people, and there's constantly a nonstop self-comparing themselves with other people. Mm-hmm. Okay, and one of the things they self-compare themselves with other people is what kind of things that other people have that are better than their things. Isn't that amazing? It's so true. The the Kardashians, the Real Housewives, the all of these things that, the, as a society, people are wired to do this. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. And then the third level up, people who think about thoughts, but they're not their thoughts. They collect, you know, thoughts, you know, and the yeah. thoughts of other people. They follow pundits, right? Yeah. And they compete with other people. They uh, have to have thoughts that are superior to the thoughts that other people have. Okay. In other mm-hmm. words, uh, and so there's a competition with others, uh, competition on the level of things, competition on the level of people and who you get to hang out with, and competition on the level of thoughts. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can, you know, I have acquired relationships with people who, because they have these thoughts, they're able to acquire these things, and everything that I have is better than people that I want to feel superior to, okay? Mm-hmm. And, but not once in this entire process, and this can go from birth to life, have you ever actually thought about how you're thinking about things? Right. Yeah. And then you cross over to a line and you say, well, I know all that exists. That's not really where I get my pleasure. I get my pleasure actually out of creating my own ways of looking at what's happening to me and then stepping back and having kind of a, an interesting exploration and, you know, exploration and of just how is it that I'm thinking about things? Right. That's the great joy. That's what I love. Look, that's what journaling has done. Oh, yeah. For me, that's, that's what been journal, my... I, that was my breakthrough journal for 25 years straight, you know, yeah. every day. I want this. I want yeah. this. I want this. And it, yeah. it wasn't, and I couldn't use the word because the because referred back to other people's <laughs> worlds. <clears throat> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The word because always means that you're comparing to other people or you're justifying yourself to other people. I said, I'm not doing this to justify. I just want to get a handle on what I want, you know, and everything like like that. So my sense is that one of the reasons why we enjoy talking to each other so much is that we both have gone across that line into thinking about our thinking. Yes. Mm -hmm. And other people are doing it. It's, it's kind of like an endless world where when you find someone else who does thinking about their thinking. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, they've kind of handled the whole world of things, people, and thoughts. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, it's funny The thinking is, I, I look at it as at the highest level of the most valuable things that I've done have come from thinking about my thinking like that, something like I look at one of the highest and I I create time for it. You know, Mm -hmm. this is the thing. It's the most valuable thing I can do is sit, you know, in my comfy chair right here thinking about, and I have an unending appetite for it. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, it's effortless to me and, increasingly enjoyable yeah yeah so i'd like to take this back to the analog you know your observation Mm -hmm. about analog that 
is that when I'm thinking about my thinking, I don't like being interrupted by the world of things, people, and thoughts. That's what it is. That's You've created that optimal environment. I call that removing the reactive activators. Because mm-hmm. you, 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 the more the thing that takes you off that track is not, you know, more often than not, it's a reactive activator that mm-hmm. somebody calls you on that phone or somebody texts you on that phone or you get some kind of notification. And that then takes you into that environment, which takes you onto the Internet, which takes you to the cat videos. Next thing you know, and it's all because you reacted to that activator. If you don't have it there, that's yeah. the great thing about, you know, the great thing about the analog world was that the newspaper came once a day. Mm-hmm. The, you know, it wasn't, the magazines were printed once a month. The mail came once a day. There were, the inputs were at a frequency that was, you know, manageable. It wasn't disruptive. And I think Yeah, you, and I think you know, because because the time in between issues, you know, like right. issues, that generally speaking, the content probably had at least a one day or two day value. You know, so yeah. if you didn't get it so if I missed the morning's paper and yeah. I didn't get to this morning's paper until tomorrow morning, I could still read it. And what was written was sufficiently still useful. It was still useful. But it wasn't immediately refuted by the opposition to that idea in equally disruptive and convincing ways. Yeah. I mean, that's really the thing, right? It's the, the number of voices and the commitment of the polls not that I mean the polarity of the opposition and mm-hmm. in favor to one hundred percent discredit any information. I mean, you get one thing's printed about hey, good news for vaccines, then three seconds later, vaccines are killing you. It's the mind control, it's the stupidest thing. That this battle by the most diligent, thoughtful army of people. 100% dedicated to furthering mm-hmm. your hatred for or belief in vaccines mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a convincing way. I mean, everybody's megaphone is 100% professional appearing. It, it's very difficult to make sense of, even with an earnest you know, effort to do so. It's very mm-hmm difficult to make sense. I mean, you and I both have friends that are doctors at the highest levels, and often they don't even agree on on, mm-hmm. on things. Mm-hmm. So what chance do you really have for doing the right thing? You know? Well, I mean, yeah. well here, I mean, it's a really good question because we were, after the party on Friday night, we uh, to dinner, the you know the owner of the um, sanctuary, sanctuary mm-hmm. resort here, Bob Castellinas, I think his name is. 
Yeah. yeah. So, and he was in, I hadn't met him before. Joe had talked a lot about him, but he was Bob Castellini, in, right. Mm-hmm. Castellini. Yeah. And, yeah. and so we were, you know, he's got this mountaintop. He's got, I think the highest mountaintop home in Paradise Valley, you know, and so we were up there and we were talking and Nick, uh, Nick Sonnenberg was there and we got into uh, discussion about you know politics and the current situation and everything else and and uh, Nick says I, d- I don't know in that world how you know anything he says how do you know anything in the, in the political world and and you know and it was an interesting discussion because he's my experience with Nick is that anytime you bring up there's kind of like a uh, a waving off on Nick's part you know well, you know, that's not even an area of discussion where you can actually know anything. You know, it's all emotions and so things. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I've met people in your world, in the technology world, where they talk in theories and they talk in uh, projections and everything else. And I said, well, how, do you, how do you know in choosing technology whether anything's real? He says, well, there's fundamental principles. And I said, I got that. And here's what I get about it. That in your world, there are fundamental principles that I don't know. And therefore, a lot of your world looks like gibberish to me. But I want you to know that in the political world, there's fundamental principles that you don't know. So all that from the outside looks like gibberish to you. And I, mm-hmm. I would say, and I say, that's true in a million different worlds, that there's somebody who's really you know, really been fascinated and gone deep in a particular world. And they're at the level of fundamental principles, you know, you know, and, and, and a hundred years ago, we shared more, a less deep understanding of the world, but what we shared more in common were a lot of fundamental principles that allowed us to operate with each other. And I think what's happened a hundred years later is that each of us have been able to go deep into something where our experience is that we're actually operating in our thinking and our decision-making, our communication and action from the standpoint of fundamental principles. And the person we're talking to doesn't get this. And so we form an opinion about them, you know, you know, that, you know, they don't know anything, you know, they don't know anything. Well, they don't know anything about our deep world, we don't know anything about their deep world either. Right. Yeah. That's well said. I mean, that's something that's true. When you don't know, it's like, yeah, your mind, your eyes only see and your ears only hear Yeah, what you're looking for. Right. So I think the, yeah. Did, were you there on Thursday? I know you were there for Ned's on Friday, but were you there for I was. Thursday? I yeah, remember yeah. Craig Shoemaker, you know, and the yeah. laughter thing. Yeah, I think that uh, this is why laughter is so important is because people with radically different deep worlds can still find things funny. Yes, I agree, and that's funny. The differences are often funny. Shining a light yeah. and isolating the polarity is very funny, and the fact that the polarity exists is funny. It's funny. Yeah. 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 And people's commitment to it is funny. Yeah. Yeah. I I had the, you know, the man, Casey Fleming, who uh, was the China, you know, 
giving the warning about China. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he was at my table, you know, and I talked to him and I, you know, I kind of got, I fell into, you know, I, I, I immediately reverted to, I'm a six year old and I'm talking to a 45 year old. So uh-huh. I don't know any, anything, but I, you know, what's happening in the adults world. And I just asked him questions like this. So he told me, you know, and I kept asking him questions, but yeah. you know, why he got on this track and everything else. And the more I asked him about why he got on this track, the less, Tense he was. I mean, he was kind of, he was kind of, you know, he was a little bit tense in the meeting. And uh, yeah. so we're talking. And a- after the, uh, we had seen him, and that was, you know, I, that that whole talk really put people, you know, I mean, people started sitting up their eyes, started getting really big and everything like that. And then Craig Schumacher, they did a good timing because they had Craig Schumacher come on and. And he just had everybody laughing for about an hour. So, and I said, you know, I think the ideal next version of what we just saw over the last two hours was next time. Next time, Casey has to conduct an hour of laughing, and Craig has to conduct an hour of talking about China. <laughs> <laughs> Now that would be funny. You're yeah. right. Oh boy. <laughs> and I said, and I said because actually both areas of knowledge are really important, but yes. each of them can only go so far in taking us deep with his knowledge. And I said probably yes. switching roles for an hour would probably give each of them an expanded sense of where they yes. go next with their own interest. You know. Yes. Very funny. Maybe the solution to the whole China thing is just to start creating China jokes. Laugh at them, right. Yeah, and just send them China jokes, you know. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and then they're little spies, you know. I said, you know, yeah. if, they're co- if they're collecting all the information, like, you know, there's 330 million Americans and uh, how much complexity is there every day that we're doing digitally, and they're collecting that, and that's just part of the world. They got their own 1.4 million people that they got to keep a handle on. How many people in the Chinese Communist Party is this using up every day just to collect the information? You know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, they must have six, seven million people. And how do you decide at the end of each day whether the one or two, three things that we've heard out of a quadrillion pieces of information? That are important for tomorrow, you know. So uh, it seems to me that they're, you know, they're. And Ronald Reagan, who had Soviet jokes, you know, in the, and it was very tense during the 1980s, but he had all these Soviet jokes. And he would tell them in every public, and it just drove the Russians crazy. Right. You know, because don't they realize that the, you know, the Marxist-Leninist well, communist view of the world is the most profound and serious insight ever. Oh, and, man. Uh, you know, and you everything. But he just laughed now. at it. Yeah, and he la- I laughed at it. But the other thing he said, you know, he said, we're so worried about the Soviets having our secrets. And mm-hmm. he said, I got a way of solving this. He said, I got a way of solving this problem with the Soviets. He said, every month... We have a thousand seven forty sevens, and we just load them up with a month's worth worth of American secrets. You know, the last month's secrets, and we fly and we dump them on the runway, 
all the secrets. We just dump it all on the runways right. in Moscow. And he says, just having them try to sort that out would bring their entire empire to a collapse. And I think, you know, in a certain way, that's actually what happened. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can't keep it down. <laughs> you can't keep it. We got more secrets. Making more every day. You think you've got our secrets? You haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's well, it, I I think this is very rich territory. You know, yes. if you combine last week's and this week. I, I think yeah. Very rich because my feeling is the the maker taker line that you were talking to Philip about is the crucial enterprise. Is your life going to be a taking life or is your life going to be a making life? Yeah. You know? And the fact and, is, Dan, it's getting easier and easier to be a taker, too. It, it's very, that division is, it's very tempting to live a very comfortable taker life. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. But what has changed is that for and I was talking to someone, you know, about what I think the stakes are right now in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's and it seems to me that the stakes are a definition of what humans are in relationship mm-hmm. to computers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the singularity model, I'll just use that. And I'm not talking strictly, you know, about singularity university. But the singularity is an idea that's been around for 70, 80 years, you know, it didn't start with, um, you know, with, um, what's his name, the Peter's partner who, who created the singularity together. Oh, Kurzweil. Yeah, Ray Kurzweil. I mean, yeah. he was just picking up on something that had already been discussed by you know, uh-huh. dozens of other people, you know. But the basic premise there is that the human being is an information processing uh, the human brain is an information in, uh, processing mechanism, and that computers are information processing mechanisms, uh-huh. and that we're not getting any faster, but the computers are getting faster, and there's a point in the future, you know, 10 years, 20 years, where there's a crossover, and that the human, be- the computers are better information processing units and then it goes exponentially from there and therefore the stage when humans were the information processing you know ultimate that's and we become obsolete i said well you know if you if your premise is true you know that we're information processing and i said but what if human brain isn't information and as a matter of fact it has nothing to do with information and what we are is meaning making, meaning making. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brain Machine. is a meaning making that yeah. we have inputs, but the the inputs are actually kind of irrelevant because we just take the inputs and do something totally different with them because we get a, we get a real pleasure out of creating new types of meaning. And we like playing with the meaning that we make and we like trading the meaning that we make and then the yeah. two of us get together we can make different kinds Share of meaning, the meaning. And, uh-huh. and the information I mean the information is just you know it's we don't need much of it we can do a lot with not very much you know and everything like that 
So if you have a hundred computers and you give it the information, you know, the information coming in, they more or less have to do the same thing because they're computers. That's what yeah. a computer is, you know. Yeah. In other words, we like computers because they're predictable. Human we like humans because they're not. <laughs> Unpredictable. Predictably yeah. irrational. I mean, a predictable human being is a long day. Yeah. I mean, five hours with a predictable human being is a week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Okay. You know, and, you know, five minutes with an unpredictable computer is really scary. Right. That's exactly right. Frustrating. Uh, you know, you know, so, so my feeling is that we're getting to the point where one of those things is true. You know, the, the first one that humans were just inferior early models of transcendent computers or we're something completely different and computers are just some of the meaning that we've kind of created and tested out for a while and it's okay you know but there's always you know there's always something better we can do with them and the big question is you know because if you know if it's the first that computers are then we're then we're doomed to be we're doomed to be total takers until the computers no longer have any use for us. <laughs> they don't need us. No they don't more need us any, a, anymore. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that's what I'm seeing, you know, as I put the two things together. And both of them are, you know, both of them are guesses, you know. Yeah. And at a certain point, you know, uh, humans are always guessing and we're always betting on certain guesses rather than others. And I just see what's happening here. But our conversation and the line that you crossed over and the line I crossed over, where the real pleasure is structuring our environment in such a way that we can spend increasing amount of time thinking about our thinking. Yes, that's exactly right. And then in the words of whose line is it anyway, you realize that the points are, everything's made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. It's true. Okay, quick wrap up. It's been delightful. This was great that we got to uh, we get to yeah. pull this off. I enjoyed that. I thought about for another thought that's going to come out of this is thinking about our thinking, but also what we're representing to think about our thinking out in the through our avatars. You know, that's something. Mm -hmm. I just saw some courtroom footage about. Hulk Hogan and the Gawker lawsuit was uh, happening about he was um, suing them for publishing his sex tape and was arguing the difference between the Hulk Hogan persona and Terry Bollea, the person, and mm -hmm. that they have different rights and levels of expectation of privacy. And mm -hmm. he taught, you know, Todd Herman has his book, Alter Ego, which is very mainstream right now. And there's actually a television called Alter Ego, where these avatars are presenting in a 
singing competition. And I think that there's some seed of some neat, you know, next level things that are happening here. So I'll circle back with that mm-hmm. because I'll let that thought percolate, but it's just something that's in the crock pot right now, just kind of marinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the interesting thing is when you're looking into the future and you're seeing the uh, emergence of something, yeah. it's also useful to look back where that was always happened. Mm-hmm. And that where you are right now is maybe at the halfway point between something that started a long time ago. Oh, and, that's interesting. And you, you see what I'm saying? Is yes. We always think that we're at, at zero and we're seeing in the future. Yeah. But I said, and the other thing is that maybe it took 10,000 years of experimenting with other things to get to the halfway point, but the next, yeah. the second half can happen in, you know, in exponentially. And I that's what, that's maybe what alter ego has been. Yeah. That yeah. alter ego, the, Clark Kent, Superman, the Batman, Bruce Wayne, the, all of those things have been historically, you know, it's been a common thing. And now this digitally going forward, they can take on their own yeah. digital identities. And that's an interesting uh, thing. Well, they can okay. interact with each other and, you know, in a way that's not predictable. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think predictability gets boring fast. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad we. Okay. Uh, I'm glad we used analog connected. time to get. Yes, to get exactly. Digi- digitally connected. Yes. Thank you. I love it. Okay, Dan. Okay. Bye. bye.